Hello and welcome to the third episode of the New Realities of Cybersecurity podcast series. My name is Ian Todd. I'm a data privacy and cybersecurity consultant here at PwC. Today I'm joined by Chris McConkey, cybersecurity partner, to discuss digital crime scene forensics. When you think of cybersecurity, you'll think of the fascinating work Chris and his team do on a daily basis. We will talk about chasing down the bad guys, setting up online traps, and carrying out digital crime scene investigations. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I think this is a, a really exciting area, and I think when people think about cybersecurity, what you do is is what people imagine, people see in the movies, and it's the kind of the, it's the fun part of cyber. So, um, if, if we get a little bit of introduction from yourself and a little bit about your area of expertise. Uh, sure thing, yeah, probably better talking about the, the expertise of the team. I think yeah, you wouldn't spend too long if you were just focused on mine. Um, I guess I'd probably at a very high level, the team is a pretty kind of hardcore squad of geeks. Um, and uh, like you said, this is often kind of viewed as the, the sexy side of, of cybersecurity. And I think to a large degree, the team often think of themselves as almost doing kind of digital hand-to-hand -hand combat with the bad guys in, right. in some, uh, some shape or form. Um, so I guess the, the three main things that we uh, are focused on is what we call threat intelligence. That's basically who are the bad guys, what are they doing, who are they targeting, what tools are they developing to do that, what data are they trying to get, what are they doing with it, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and that's generally so that organizations can understand why they're being targeted or what to watch out for, what's making them a target, but also how to then defend themselves against that type of activity. Um, the second area is really putting a lot of that intelligence into practice and helping clients find evidence of some sort of malicious activity on their networks. It might be an attacker using the same credentials as the IT admins do to move around a network. It might be malware. It might be an insider taking loads of data out. Um, and the third bit, which is probably where um, a lot of our, our heritage is in the UK, since because we, we've been doing it since about 1998, um, is in the incident response uh, and digital mm. forensics side of things. So um, for, for the most part, we act as the, the emergency panic button for clients whenever they get hacked. Um, and we're the team that helps them figure out what happened um, and what they need to do to, uh, to stop it and resolve the issue. Cool. I think we talked briefly uh, in one of the other podcasts, actually, with uh, Charlie McMurdy, and she said that was part of breach aid. And, and your name was brought up there, like you say, when, they, when the emergency buttons hit, you guys come in there on parachutes and try and help the, the organizations out. Yeah, um, yeah so the, the whole breach aid concept is really bringing together the, the kind of the full spectrum of stuff that you need in the midst of a, a crisis because the technical side of it is just one bit. Um, and it might often be the first bit through the door because you obviously need to know what's going on in order to, to figure out how to, how to deal with it. Um, but helping a client, for example, navigate the decision-making process in the midst of a crisis. So do we take systems offline, impact customer uh, or service availability, um, or do we keep stuff online even though it might be compromised? Um, who do we tell? What do we tell them? When do we tell them? All of those types of decisions. It's really important to have that kind of broader crisis management expertise and all of then the legal and regulatory side of it as well, right. um, which, um, as, you, as you'll know from all the data protection, um, you know, EU and GDPR stuff yeah. is, is hugely important at the minute. Yeah, so it's such a complex beast, isn't it, to try and uh, react when something goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but so uh, I think one of the, the key things I had in my mind is around forensics. And when I think of forensics, I instantly think of CSI and fingerprints. And this is the kind of thing I think about. Am I a million miles away of thinking that from a digital perspective? Is this, is, 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 when you go into a, a crime scene or into a, a breach, are you looking for the same things that we look for in the physical world in a digital environment? Yeah, it's, it's really about following the trail of digital breadcrumbs in some shape or form. Um, so like you described, the sort of digital crime scene 
for in, I guess in, in most cases, you kind of have a thread to pull on. So in a physical crime scene, you would start with a dead body, right? You, you know that's there and you have to basically work backward as to what happened, how did it happen, who did it, etc. cetera. Um, the, the two common scenarios that we get called into in the digital world, one is you have, a, you have something that you can kind of work from. There's either a system that you know is compromised um, or you know that a specific piece of data has been lost and found itself on paste bin. Um, and that gives you a starting point. So it's all about kind of piecing together the little breadcrumbs of, of evidence across an organization to put together the full fact pattern of what's happened. The other side of things is where it's probably really, maybe five, six years, um, a lot of the government agencies have been much more proactive in notifying companies when they've had a problem. Right. But the amount of information they get to act on is actually pretty limited. So what you'll usually get is some sort of notification that says, at some point, you've had a system somewhere on your network that's communicated with this domain. It's bad, you should look at it. Um, and that actually doesn't give clients an awful lot to go on because they don't have a huge amount of historical log data to go analyze. Um, and so we end up knowing there's a crime scene somewhere right. in, the, in the company's network, but that network might span 50 countries and have 200,000 systems on it. Um, and so we've had to build a lot of um, different technology um, approaches and analytical approaches to basically sweep networks to find out, okay, where is the crime scene? And then start actually working from there. Incredible. And how do you start? I mean, like you say, that's such a crime scene in, in the physical sense is there's a dead body there. Let's, let's cordon this area off and we'll start. But when you start doing that over the entire globe, and I mean, where, where do you realistically start? How do you start that? Uh, it's, it varies a little bit by each client. But basically, if you're looking for evidence, you've, either, you've, you've mainly got three sources of it, right? You've got either something on the endpoints, so like processes that are running, like malware that's, that, that are on, on, on the actual servers and user uh, systems around the enterprise. You've got evidence of something in network traffic, so really data in motion, and that might be data being taken out of the, the, the enterprise. It might be malware command and control traffic in the networks. And then you've got historical evidence of stuff that you get in firewall logs and DNS logs and proxy logs, all, all of those sorts of things. Um, and so quite often our focus is on getting as much visibility across those three sources as we can, um, and then applying all of our intelligence about kind of what we know is bad and a lot of statistical anomaly detection methods and things to figure out where like, where, do, where do we focus down on. Right. Um, and then as you described in the, the, the physical crime scene, you actually want to cordon stuff off. Um, it's actually reasonably similar to that. If, if you've got a kind of malicious hacker inside a network that has control of the network, part of your containment strategy, containment strategy in terms of kicking them out of the network is really how do you cordon off mm. areas of it and contain them into little areas so that you can then kind of remediate what's happening in that area and limit their, their ability to get into other bits again. Fascinating. How, a question I kind of think about when I'm listening to your talk there is how many organizations don't know that these crime scenes exist? Because I imagine that must be a big issue as well, that they just don't know this, this murder has happened somewhere, if, if that makes sense. No, I, I, absolutely. So some of, the, some of the stats from the last few years, I think this, this one's probably a few years old now, but the one that's always stuck in my mind um, was something in the region of, I think it was 94% of organizations are notified about security incidents by third parties. Wow. Yeah. Um, they haven't actually spotted it themselves. Um, so I think, I think what, what's probably changed over the last few years, if you look at some of the, the metrics that come out in various annual reports, is that organizations are generally getting better at finding incidents themselves. Um, but the containment time, so the actual time to resolve the unauthorized access to a network or to an IT asset uh, is actually going up. So the bad guys are actually getting better at withstanding 
attempts by the company to get rid of them. Right, right. So I guess that, that, that leads us quite nicely to the next part. So the, the, I guess the, the, the fundamental theme of this podcast is about the baddies and the good guys. So, so what, what are we seeing from the bad guys right now? What, what are they using? What are they trying to do? What, what, what is their, their, their motivation right now as well, I guess? So I guess, yeah, let's, let's start with the motivation piece because that, that's probably easiest to break down mm. into a few categories. Um, we, we generally break it into four or five, depending on which, which way we're thinking about it. Um, the way I like doing it is probably focused on four, with the fifth potentially being part of all of them. Um, so you've got the, the kind of very standard organized crime. Anybody that's focused on getting something they can monetize quickly, it's everything from, I don't know, your personal online banking credentials that the latest kind of dry decks and Direza spam runs try to try to pick up, through to um, what happened the uh, the bank in Bangladesh where they've got sort of tens of millions of unauthorized wire transfers um, being conducted by somebody that's actually inside their network yeah. that, that shouldn't be there, um, and that predominantly affects. Uh, financial services probably more than other sectors. It does affect um, everybody, um, but financial services obviously get hit most heavily because the bad guys always follow where the money is. Yeah. So that's one category. Um, another is around sabotage, um, and that is in some cases kind of nation state capability. If you look at the very old but very relevant kind of um, Stuxnet example, the first kind of disruptive um, thing that was um, was really observed. Um, I think that's probably the case now a little bit um, with some other nation states and their ability to, to sabotage things if they so needed. Mm. Um, but the, the instances of that are reasonably, um, re reasonably kind of few uh, around the world. You've got the hacktivist side of things, which is really doing anything that's disruptive and embarrassing, and that's usually because a company is acting in um, or they have a different kind of stance compared to some group's ideological view on something. We're going to see more of this, aren't we, I guess? At least it seems in the media we are around. Anonymous, I guess, would be potentially in that category, and we saw the big Ashley Madison hack oh, yeah. um, or, or insider threat, whatever that might have ended up being, but there was a lot of uh, talk around that as well. And um, I guess, like you say, these are kind of growing in the media, it seems. Their presence seems to be growing. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're probably the ones that get the most media attention because that's their, that's their overall goal. They want to draw attention to stuff. So. Mm. Um, anything they can do to take over an organization's Twitter account, deface their website, leak emails, all of that sort of stuff is just designed to get publicity. Um, and it's usually fairly effective. And then the fourth category is espionage, and that might be nation-state espionage focused on intellectual property or merger and acquisition um, deal information, those types of things. Um, it could also be competitors seeking kind of an, an unfair advantage in something. But across all of those, um, you've already alluded to the term insider threat, um, there is the potential for, for insiders to be involved as well. Yeah, and so, so what are we seeing as the kind of the attack vessels, if, if that's the right thing? What, what are people, what are the bad guys using to get into the castle and start stealing the stuff? What, what are they doing right now? Uh, so a few, a few fairly standard things. I mean, not, not, nothing has really changed in this space in the last while. Um, the bad guys usually come up with little kind of tweaks um, on things, but the, the general principles are pretty much the same. You've either got um, kind of individuals just being targeted through spear phishing, mm. um, and that's either to collect credentials that can be then be used for something else, or to drop some sort of malware that gives attackers a foothold on a network so that they can move around, find um, whatever data they're interested in, and get it out. And that's a, a, an email that's focused on a, a particular person. So a, a spear phishing attack will maybe something to a, a partner of PwC, and they'll, they'll directly aim at that person. Yeah, absolutely, and that's so. The, the great example of that um, from kind of recent history, what's been really prevalent over the last 12 months, um, is, is what's called BEC fraud, business email compromise. Um, and anybody in a big organization has probably seen emails appearing to come from their CFO 
to some probably overworked person in the finance function saying, right. hey, we're just about to close an urgent deal. Um, we need you to make this, uh, this wire transfer payment today. Um, and people, because they're getting an email from the CFO, circumvent the normal approval processes. They're already overworked. They're like, oh, I have to get this done as quick as possible. Um, and we'll suddenly wire a couple of hundred thousand pounds out to somebody. Um, and the FBI did a pretty good report on this a few months ago, which estimated that several billion has been lost to those types of wow. very, very basic yeah. confidence scams um, in, in the last 12 months. Um, so that's people focused on kind of getting into specific users' systems. On the other side of things, you've got attackers that are trying to kind of come in through the perimeter. So they'll obviously look at kind of vulnerable web servers, email servers, those types of things, get into them, and then either get data straight off those systems or somehow burrow into the network a bit further from there. Incredible. So I think we, we've got a bit of a flavor for the bad guys. Um, what, what are the good guys doing? I think because the, the, the perception people have is that the bad guys are always one step ahead and we're always chasing. So how, how do we keep up with them if they're, if they're sprinting ahead? And what, what, what are the good guys doing? Oh, great question. I mean, if you, if you start at a very simple level, there's stuff that we could bang on about, which everybody already knows, and which is just generally quite difficult to do in very large organizations. And that is stuff that actually mitigates a huge amount of, of just general attacks, but also quite targeted ones. And it's basic stuff. It's keeping applications and operating systems up to date and patched. Um, it's uh, limiting administrative privileges so that mm. not every user's got the ability to do whatever they want in the network. And that helps the insider threat, that, that minimizes that a bit. Absolutely, it just exercises a bit more control over yeah. what, what people can, can access. Um, and the, f the fourth is uh, around application whitelisting. So rather than trying to block bad stuff, only let stuff that you know is good and is trusted and you, that you want to be in your environment actually run. So there's a really good paper um, released a few years ago by the Australian Signals Directorate, so Australia's version of, uh, of GCHQ, um, and they studied about a thousand security incidents that they had investigated and worked out what controls would have mitigated those. And so they came up with a list of 35 that would have mitigated pretty much everything, but the top four of those, which are the ones I've just um, mentioned, I think they calculated somewhere between 80 and 90% of stuff those oh, would, have, wow. those would have, um, have deflected. And so that's kind of more kind of the hygiene side of things. Yeah. Like if, if you can't do that stuff really, really well, um, I mean, there, are, there will always be little gaps somewhere. But most organizations have very good reasons why they, they can't do all of those uh, very well in their environments. Um, you've then got the concept of threat intelligence, which is kind of working out who's likely to target you and why, like mm. what bits of your business and the things that you're doing put you at risk, um, and then how do you protect the specific bits of data or systems that the bad guys um, are going to be interested in. Um, and then the other, I mean, there's lots of other strategies, but the other thing that has kind of re-emerged recently um, is the, the concept of deception. And so a lot of people are talking about kind of um, deception honeypots and things right. inside organizations, um, which is really part of a, a broader active defense strategy. And it's about making your own network a hostile place for an attacker to operate in. Um, and I described it to somebody recently as almost like a house of mirrors. So mm. like whenever you come through the front door, you want an attacker not to really know where they are or like whether a system is real that they're looking at or whether it's a, a fake one. And so there are more and more things um, popping up in that space now as well. 
Fascinating. So, so when I think of honeypots, I think of it attracts people in to that area. So is that what you're doing? You're intentionally diverting their attention to a place where you've got more control and you can kind of more monitoring over. Is that, is that what you're doing? Or actually systems that look like ones that attackers are interested in, right. but are actually fake. So as soon as an attacker touches them, it'll raise an alarm somewhere. So nobody, nobody should, in legitimate business use, be touching those systems. If somebody's trying to access them, it's probably a, access them. It's probably a bad guy on the inside. Interesting. They've got little trip wires there. So no, that's, you know, exa that's exactly the concept. Yeah, great stuff. Um, so one of the things I've heard you talk about is, is sinkholes. And again, I guess this kind of goes in with this, this idea of honeypot. So um, could you give me a little bit of an idea of what a sinkhole is and, and what you're using them for? Yeah, sure. So yeah, it's one of one of many research tools in our arsenal. Um, we obviously have a full-time research team that just tries to keep track of, of bad guys. They kind of track the existing ones that we know about and find new ways of, of identifying new bad guys. Um, but whenever we're researching a threat actor, um, we, we're quite often interested in their targeting. Are they targeting pharma companies in Western Europe? Are they targeting oil and gas companies in Northern Africa or financial services companies in the US? Um, it's quite useful just to know kind of what they're actually up to at the minute. Um, and one of the ways that we often do that is, so each, well, for most malware families, once they're inside, once they're onto somebody's computer, um, they have to basically phone home to say, hey, I'm here, what instruction um, do you have for me? What do you want me to do? Um, and that's known as command and control traffic. So they basically have to phone home, wait for a command, then execute it. Um, and that might be they're phoning home every two minutes to www.baddomain.com, right. for example. Um, what we'll often do is work with the domain registrar, so those domains were registered um, through, to take control of them. So that we now own those domains, not the bad guys. Right. And all of the infected systems are basically phoning home to a server under our control, not the bad guys. Now, we never send anything back, we don't communicate, but we can actually log where those are coming from. So we can see if all of the connections are coming from the US, Northern Africa, Western Europe, Japan, or kind of just spread all over the world. Um, and we can quite often then trace back which companies or individuals are actually, not, not right down to names, um, of individuals, but companies, for example, we can somehow work back so that we can actually tell if it's all pharma companies or oil and gas <laughs> companies and so on. Um, and that gives us a really good idea for that specific campaign, who are the attackers targeting? Yeah. Um, and some attackers only target very niche sectors. Um, some have actually a very broad remit in terms of targeting, so we see a real mix of, of companies involved in it. Um, and what we use that for, aside from just the research, um, is actually to notify victims where we can. Right. Um, in some cases, we actually work with law enforcement and CERT agencies to try and um, make victim notifications so that they can actually resolve the, uh, the issue. The other thing it's quite useful for is um, as part of an incident response containment strategy, so whenever we're kicking an attacker out of our network, we'll usually at the same time try to take control of all of the command and control infrastructure that they're using on, on that specific um, attack. Um, and it's, it's only a very small part of a containment strategy, but it's also very useful to figure out, once you, once you think you've cleaned up the, the intrusion, do you still see any systems from that client beaconing back to the uh, the command and control server? Oh, wow. um, and it's it's useful to be able to correlate. Yep, containment's executed. Don't see any traffic back to the uh, the, the the server. Incredible. It sort of gives you a good picture of, of everything that's going on. Yeah, a yeah, very useful research tool. And do the bad guys will they know? Well, I mean, it, it might seem like a very simple question, but are they aware that you've kind of held hostage that domain? Are they, do they know? And at what point do they know? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they know reasonably quickly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Their stuff stops, stops working. Um, I mean, in reality, the, 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 two, the two ways you can get in control of those things, 
you can either work with the domain registrars to take them over when they're still in use by the bad guys. Um, but in many cases, the bad guys have been using them for a year. They, they don't really care about the victims anymore. They've, they've got everything they wanted out of them, and then they let the domains expire. Um, and so the other way of picking them up is wait until they expire and then grab them. You quite often still see some victims. Interesting. Incredible. So one of the, the questions, and I think this is quite relevant to what's happening right now in the, in the political sphere of the UK, is the introduction of this Snoopers Charter. Um, I think it's going to change the way people use the internet. And I, from what I've read, people are going to start using VPNs um, and different proxies and Tor servers. And obviously on the other side of that, we're going to see a huge amount of um, databases that store huge amount of, of personal information. Do, how do you see this changing the, the landscape in the future? Will it change it? Or what, what do you see from there? Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this one pans out, actually. And I think if you, if you look at it cold, there are probably going to be both positives and negatives associated with it. Um, in any sort of kind of surveillance capacity, if you look at a lot of the other kind of international regime, regimes where the internet is very heavily policed, um, there's a very kind of prevalent switch to exactly as you said, VPNs and other methods of kind of circumventing some of the, the surveillance. Um, on it, um, not necessarily because anybody's up to anything bad, but just because they like their privacy. Yeah, and I think people forget that, don't they? That sometimes people just want to hold their privacy. They don't, it's not that they're doing anything that's malicious at all, but they like to keep their privacy um, to, to themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other side of it is if you look at some of what the National Cybersecurity Centre says they want to do to make the UK a much tougher place for bad guys to, to, to target, um, they almost need that visibility into traffic to be able to. To, to stop it. Um, and over the last few years, we've seen a huge switch from, um, I, I guess, just in general terms, malware, which is communicating in kind of plain text, all switching over to SSL traffic. Um, and unless, actually, um, Mozilla for the very first time stated that over 50% of all web traffic is now um, uh, encrypted. Oh, wow. Yeah. So unless you've got some sort of inspection capability, and actually at a, either at an ISP level or a corporate level, you have no idea whether that's malware traffic, whether it's legitimate stuff uh, or not. And so the ability to inspect that actually makes it much easier to catch malicious activity. Yeah. Um, but also at a national level, would mean that the UK can actually apply greater kind of filtering mm. to try and prevent external kind of uh, maybe state-sponsored hackers in different bits of the world from actually getting into corporates over here. That's really interesting because I, I, ha I haven't seen that talked about as much. Obviously, people have went very passionately around the privacy side of things, but that's, uh, I think that's a really important part that maybe has been looked over slightly as well. Yeah, and then uh, as you said, the other side is is this huge additional kind of set of data that's, that the ISPs are going to um, have to collect. Um, I mean, I, I used to run an ISP. I know the volumes of data that even small ones um, kind of push in and out of, um, of their networks. Um, that, that's going to be a huge technological burden for a lot of the major um, ISPs. Um, but it's also going to be a data set that will uh, inevitably get targeted at some point because it does have really rich um, telemetry on all of the subscribers. Yeah, I think that's, that, I think that's the, 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 the big fear a lot of people have is that huge data storage and, and how secure is it and, and what can people extract from there. I think that's a, it's a fair enough fear, I think, for, for people to have. So I, I guess the question I'd like to ask as well, what, what is PwC doing in, to, to help the, the good guys with the bad guys? What, what, are, we, what are we doing? Um, quite, quite a lot. I mean, I, I used to say that our, our time was really split sort of 50-50 between helping clients prepare 
pre-incident so that if one happened, they're able to respond to it effectively um, and to reduce the likelihood of one actually happening. And 50% of our time actually helping clients respond to incidents. Um, I think more recently, it's probably been kind of 40, 60. So 40 on the prep side, 60 on the response side, just because there's some major, some fairly major incidents uh, happening in the UK uh, at the minute and over the last few months. Um, but I guess across the, the spectrum of what we do, um, I guess the, the, bit, the bits that I'm responsible for are primarily helping organisations understand about the bad guys. And that's everything from reporting through the technical data that they can use to protect their, their networks uh, and understand why they're being targeted. Um, helping them actually develop monitoring and detection strategies so they get better at finding the malicious activity themselves or in some cases doing that for them either as part of an assessment or as part of a managed service um, and then a lot around the the response side of things so all of the everything from forensic readiness plans to incident response playbooks through to being the um, as we described uh, earlier the panic button um, so that we can actually uh, swoop in whenever organizations need help and you can once our panic button pressed you can be there relatively quickly can't you to absolutely uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've 150 incident response and digital forensics people scattered around the uk so they're they're uh, usually fairly close to where our clients are perfect well, well thank you so much i think it's, it, the content was fascinating so i do appreciate your time i'm sure there'll be a bunch of questions and hopefully if listeners do have questions we'll feed them back to you and, and get some answers cool thanks for having me thank you for joining us today next week i'll be joined by richard modeling discussing the importance of identity and access management an increasingly important area for organisations wishing to improve their security from external and internal threats. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please feel free to contact me directly on Twitter at iantodd86 or email me at ian.todd at pwc.com. Please remember to subscribe for future episodes.